If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every frontline soldier, even those considered the strongest and fittest in their units, was suffering from the same symptoms that shakes, nightmares, sweats, that they'd been treating in the, in the mental ward of their base hospital. That was Matthew Parker on the impact on soldiers who fought the Battle of Monte Cassino. The Bolsheviks from the beginning saw their revolution as a long-term task and from the 1920s applied themselves furiously to the task of changing human nature. And that was Orlando Figes discussing the Russian Revolutionary Period. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for our latest subscription offers. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, visit historyextra.com forward slash digital. 70 years ago this month, the Battle of Monte Cassino came to an end. It was the conclusion of four months of bitter fighting between Allied and German forces over a key defensive position in the middle of Italy. To explore the history of this battle, I spoke to historian Matthew Parker, author of a best-selling account of the fight for Monte Cassino. I began by asking him to fill me in on the background to the battle. The Italian campaign, and, and which sort of climaxed, I suppose, at Monte Cassino, was the result of a strategic and tactical mess, a fudge, if you like. Um, after the end of the African campaign, the Americans were very keen to attack across the channel and head on the shortest route to Berlin. The British were much more cautious, um, really, from the suffering that had been endured the generation before um, fighting in the First World War in northern France. Um, and they were keen, in Churchill's word, to attack the soft underbelly of Europe. Now, the Americans were suspicious this was really motivated by imperial concerns, which, to extent perhaps it was, as control of the Mediterranean would open up the route uh, to India for, for the British. Um, but really it was about trying to knock Italy out of the war and to also the other sort of strategic aim of the campaign was to um, capture airfields in sort of near Naples from which um, the uh, German assets, uh, access assets in the Balkans could be attacked. Now, what actually happened 
was really these strategic objectives were achieved long before the Allies reached Monte Cassino. The invasion of Sicily in July 1943 effectively brought down Mussolini and after the um, Allied troops landed near Naples at Salerno in September. Um, the Italians had capitulated, and very soon after that, the airfields were um, captured and, and put to use. So the big question, of course, is why the Allies continued fighting up Italy to, towards the north. After Italy had essentially capitulated, Germany, am I right, then came down and, and occupied a lot of, of Italy at that point? That's right. The um, the Germans had plans ready and poured troops into Italy the moment the, the Italians capitulated. And for them, the uh, invasion from the south was something of a godsend. And they knew, everyone Everyone knows, uh, if you go back to um, you know Hannibal, and who actually went through the Alps to invade Italy, uh, Napoleon famously said, Italy is a boot, you have to enter it from the top. Uh, and really, and if you if you look through um, the the long history of warfare in Italy, there's very few successful attacks on Rome from the south. And the reason for this is simple: there are high mountains interspersed with fast-flowing rivers. It is perfect defensive terrain. The Germans were aware of this and were more than happy for the Allies to, as they put it, break their teeth um, attacking from the south. Why do you think the Allies then decided to do this? I mean, would they not have been better off just planning the, the campaign, the Normandy campaign, and, and leaving Italy as it was. One thing you have to bear in mind is that the, the Allies were a coalition, uh, not just British and Americans. There were New Zealanders, there were Poles, there were um, Indians, there were Africans, French. And really, this caused all sorts of confusion. Uh, and that really explains, partly explains the decision. The other one is really is really political. Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt were very, very keen for Allied troops to be engaged with the Germans, to be fighting in order to take the pressure off the Soviet Union. Uh, and of course, there were fears at this time that Stalin would make separate peace with Hitler, uh, and that had to be avoided at all costs. And they saw the way to avoid this was by showing willing uh, and continuing to engage the Germans. And they hoped cause German troops to be moved from France and from the Eastern Front to, to fight in Italy. So the Allies fought their way up, up to Italy. Why was it that Monte Cassino ended up becoming the site of this major battle? Well, there had been very fierce fighting before the Allies even reached uh, Cassino. There were a series of defensive lines built by the Germans with enormous skill um, all the way up the boot of Italy. Uh, and there was a line in front of the um, Cassino called the Winter Line, which, which took a huge amount of fighting to, to break through. But Cassino was special. Cassino guarded the, the monastery on this incredibly sort of high spur of land guarded the road to Rome and was possibly the finest defensive position anywhere in Europe and in fact had been studied as such in staff colleges in Italy for, for many years. It was the perfect defensive position and the Germans really brought out all of their expertise in enhancing the defensive capabilities by clearing uh, fields of fire, by building deep bunkers 
by also flooding in front of casino there's a couple of rivers the garigliano and the rapido these were um, dams were broken so all of the ground in front of casino was this sort of morass which of course made it impassable for tanks and this combined with the uh, the, the appalling winter weather in italy it was something like the worst winter for 50 or 100 years um grounded the allies um air, air power in which they had great superiority and this really gave every advantage to the defender in the battle to come was it just not in any way feasible to to somehow bypass casino and just go round it well, this was tried. I mean, there was the Eighth Army under Montgomery was fighting on the Adriatic coast, but there was huge rainfall that winter, and the Sangro River flooded, and it was basically impassable. They had to just shut the front down. Um, there was attempts, of course, in January 1944 to attack along the coast, but here again there was, um, you know, deep rivers. I mean, river crossings are a recurring nightmare of the casino battles, and of course. There was the attempt at Anzio um, in January when um, American troops were landed behind the Gustav line, which was the, the German defensive line anchored on Casino. But this, in fact, itself became a liability. The hope was that the Germans would see the American troops pouring ashore at Anzio and, and abandon the Gustav line. But they did no such thing. They counterattacked. And it ended up with the um, soldiers at Casino having to launch attacks in order to take pressure off the Anzio bridgehead, which meant effectively the, the tail was wagging the dog. Um, so really, these, these, the, all these options have been tried. Um, and the only thing was the Allies to continue bashing their heads against this impregnable position. In terms of numerical figures, what were the relative strengths of the two sides at Casino? Well, it varied. Um, obviously, a lot of units came and went. I mean, we're talking this is a battle that went on from January through to May. Um, on, on the whole, certainly by the end, by the, um, the what we call the fourth battle, which was the, the final breakthrough, the Allies outnumbered the Germans something like three or four to one in terms of manpower. And they had also, um, you know, as I've said, a huge superiority in tanks and aircraft as well, and in artillery. And what was the Allied strategy to try and defeat this very strong defensive position? It was a bit of a mess. They, they tried, as you suggested, going round in the mountains using uh, extremely effective French North African mountain troops. Um, but they were sort of attacking up snow-clad mountains. It was, it was absolutely horrific uh, and they launched a series of piecemeal attacks first in January when the uh, US 36th Division tried to cross the Rapido River in front of Casino and suffered what was um, called in the press at home the worst disaster since Pearl Harbor and thereafter they did everything they could to utilize their um, huge power in terms of bombers so for the second battle of casino the monastery the sacred site was reduced to rubble by the american uh, super fortress um, bombers with the hope that then british actually british indian troops could could sort of storm it but unfortunately because of the difficulty of getting troops up the steep mountain there were insufficient men uh, ready to go at the right moment the third battle again used air power to demolish Casino Town. If you go there 
today you won't find a single building that predates the Second World War. Uh, and this was held by an elite German parachute uh, unit, um, only 300 men, who miraculously managed to fight off the attacking force, which in this case was New Zealanders. You can see how international this battle was. That was in March, and then there was quite a long lull, and then at last in May, and General Alexander, the Supreme Allied Commander in the theatre, and did really what he uh, had wanted to do all along, which was to attack all along the front uh, from Consino to the sea. Uh, and this eventually, really by sheer force of numbers, uh, broke the German resistance. You mentioned earlier about the bombing of the actual monastery itself. Were there any ethical qualms at the time about doing that, or was it just felt that it was a military essential? I think they were. I mean, there were debates um, between uh, Alexander and Churchill and other senior commanders. Uh, and really, they'd, they'd taken the view from early in the Italian campaign that no building was worth an Allied soldier's life. At the time, this was, of course a huge propaganda coup for the Germans who could point to the Allies and, uh, as, as barbarians and unchristian. And r rather ironically, it was actually counterproductive because the monastery in ruins was an even better defensive position than uh, w when it was intact. Um, and certainly local Italians, even today, uh, consider the, the bombing a sacrilege. But I don't think Alexander paused too long before giving the order. I've read in some places that conditions for the people fighting here were comparable to, say, something like Stalingrad or the First World War trenches. From your point of view, what do you think it was like for the people fighting the battle? This was really the, the key question that I wanted to answer when I, when I was researching and writing the book. Um, and to that, you know, to, to that aim, I concentrated as much as possible on telling the story from the bottom up, from interviews with hundreds of veterans around the world. I mean, what first really one of the things that first drew me to this story, I was working on a book um, called The War of Nerves by Ben Shepard, which is an excellent history of military psychiatry um, from the 19th century through to modern day. And there I came across a curious little episode. Um, it turns out that the young American psychiatrists, they arrived at Casino and for the first time, because of the static nature of the fighting, they were able to get right up to the front line to, to sort of uh, assess the, 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 the riflemen fighting there. And what they found absolutely amazed them. They found that every frontline troop, a soldier, even those considered the strongest and fittest in their unit, was suffering from the same symptoms that shakes, nightmares, sweats, that they'd been treating in the, in the mental ward of their base hospitals. So effectively, the whole place had, was having a sort of mass nervous breakdown. And this really intrigued me, and uh, and I really wanted to find out how on earth that had happened. And I think it's th through through lots of factors. Partly the conditions, as I said, it was the worst winter weather. Um, it was you know people were freezing to death. Um, the fighting was very much hand to hand. I think we have this view of the Second World War as somehow sort of cleaner and more mechanical and fast moving than the First World War, but the casino 
all of this was was turned upside down, and it was, um, you know, compared by people on both sides to to uh, the fighting at sort of Passchendaele and the Somme. And because of the conditions made sort of armour and aircraft obsolete, the fighting went back to an earlier age. Uh, it was rifles, it was mortars, it was grenades, even hand-to-hand fighting. And I think this is what made it such a uniquely distressing experience for those who were there, as I found out when I talked to veterans. And the other thing is that unlike perhaps the, the fighting the Battle of Britain, for instance, there really was a, a feeling amongst the, the soldiers that they were fighting a, a sort of diversion. They were, they were uh, you know, sacrificing themselves for no real purpose. Uh, I mean, the morale breakdown, even before Casino, by December 43, there was an epidemic of desertion in the British Army. There was something like 20,000 men on the trot as they call it, even you know, to the extent where Alexander was pleading to be allowed to reinstate the death penalty for desertion unsuccessfully. And if you look at the American soldiers, it's the same. I mean, the Mark Clark's Fifth Army, I think by December 43, had suffered something like 40,000 battle casualties. And at the same time, there were 50,000 men off sick. And I heard stories of American soldiers you know, deliberately filling their boots with water in the hope that they got trench foot and therefore could avoid frontline combat. This is really what makes Casino sort of uniquely interesting and nuanced and and complicated. And you add to that all these other nationalities who weren't necessarily, I mean, if you look at the Poles, they were fanatically enthusiastic fighters, uh, particularly contrasted to the sort of civilian armies of Britain and the United States. Um, And I think that that's what makes, you know, you can't say, there's one particular casino soldier. There were all sorts of people um, who reacted to the, the trauma in, in lots of different ways. But if you have to generalize, you could say that they didn't really feel that their sacrifices were making any difference to the war effort. On the bigger picture, how much focus was there around the world on what was happening at casino? Did people around the world feel also that it was a bit of a diversion or were they more focused on the upcoming Normandy landings and the Eastern Front? Well, certainly, if you look at the um, the British press, they were pretty derogatory about, they were sort of quips about sunny Italy. Um, and at one point, the people fighting in Italy were called the D-Day Dodgers, which was something that they adopted, ironically, uh, as, their, as their motto. Um, but then if you look at Poland, of course, it's a completely different story. The fact that there were Poles fighting um, in Italy, um, and particularly that it was Poles who eventually occupied the the monastery, which had taken on this huge symbolic importance by this point. This was very, very big news in Poland, and it would, it gave hope that um, that Poland, by covering itself in in glory, martial glory, would somehow survive um, as a as a free state. Which, of course, um, by the time of Casino, was was already a, a forlorn hope. Rather unusually, in this case, you had two armies fighting over a separate country, Italy. How did the local civilian population fare during the battle? I was very interested to find this out, and I, I interviewed a, a number of um, Italians who, who had been there, mainly as either children or as, as young adults. Ironically, they actually suffered more once they had been liberated. Before the Germans um, were driven out of Casino, a lot of the Italians took to the hills in order to avoid compulsory conscription or, or, or labour on the, on the defences. And then the French North African soldiers broke through 
and started committing mass rapes on the uh, female population to the extent that the Italians actually had to be guarded by British and American troops uh, for their own safety. Um, but there was another, there's another sort of Italian story to Casino. I was actually invited out there in last December to celebrate the, the moment when Italian troops first fought against the Germans on the Allied side, which was just a little bit south of Casino. They were, it was a, a bit of a disaster, but this is obviously something that the Italians are immensely proud of. So this is a moment where Italy, in the eyes of some, began to win back honour for itself. The Allies did eventually manage to break through at Casino. What happened after that? How long did it take them to then march to Rome and clean up the rest of Italy? Well, there'd been this plan put together by Alexander, um, really hoping to entirely encircle and annihilate the German 10th Army. The plan was for the breakthrough at Casino to be um, matched by an attack at Anzio, which had been massively reinforced, and, and, and thereby surround the German forces. What happened instead was that the American General Mark Clark decided that he very much wanted to have the honour of being the first to enter Rome. He was, uh, Clark was obsessed with public, he had a huge public relations operation and photographers uh, and was really publicity hungry to uh, an obscene degree. If you talk to any of his American soldiers who fought under him, they have nothing but disgust for him. So instead of encircling the, the German army, um, he directed his men to enter Rome and the German 10th Army escaped, moved north, and had to be fought all over again uh, later in, in, in August 1944 on another line of defences called the Gothic Line uh, north of Florence. So really it, uh, the, the campaign fizzled out and didn't achieve really... I mean, Churchill had this hope to, to sort of get to the top of Italy, turn right and sort of get into the Balkans before the Russians, but nothing like that happened. Do you think that the Allies learned much from the Italy campaign that they were then able to put to use in the Normandy campaign and the battle for France? I think um, lessons were were probably learned. I mean, this this is very near the D-Day. We're talking sort of May 1944, which is when the Allies really finally got their act together and were able to, um, particularly in terms of sort of combined arms operations, um, with uh, you know pretty effective use of artillery and air power um, and even naval power, they were able to fight much more efficiently than had been the case earlier during the, the battles in January, February and March. But I don't think you can really say that, that lessons were learnt, no. And so we're now coming up to the 70th anniversary of the end of the battle. How do you think we should be remembering it after this distance in time? This was the, sort of the question that I asked the veterans that I met, sort of several hundred of them. And I asked them how they felt now about Casino. And a few of them tended to be the officers or the volunteers were remembered their their victory there, if you if you can call it that, with with pride. But the vast majority really recall Casino with horror, grief, and disgust and anger at at what they were what they were put through there. And I remember very vividly going to, to, to meet veterans and their families, and often they'd never spoken about it before. A lot of, a lot of them really couldn't, 
cope until right at the end of their lives with talking about their experiences there. Uh, so so mem family members would sort of creep in when I was interviewing them because they'd never heard these stories before. And I remember one wife said to me, you, you know, she said, she said, you will tell the truth about Casino. You won't try and make it heroic. And that's really what I tried to do. Being back in Casino in December was a very strange experience. The place is full of ghosts. Everywhere you look, there are these huge cemeteries. Uh, and there's still, you, you see young Italians who've in wheelchairs because they've stood on some bomb that hadn't been cleared. And that still happens today. And there's a few pe there were a few people there, these sort of reenactment people. There were sort of young Italians dressed up in American army uniforms and rushing around in jeeps and so on. But the Italian veterans there, they had no time for these people who they saw as sort of seeing the whole thing as fun, as glamorizing it. And they, like the British veterans, really remembered the, 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 the whole Monte Cassino episode with, with great sadness. And do you think that because it perhaps doesn't quite fit into the triumphant allied narrative of the Second World War that Monte Cassino might sometimes get a little bit overlooked? I certainly think so. Uh, I mean, this was really a, another motivation for me doing the book. Um, you know, there'd been there'd been so much on the Battle of Britain and D-Day and, and so on, but uh, nothing on this rather more complicated and rather darker story uh, in Italy. But then I found, you know, when I, I put out an appeal for veterans, I think I wrote to lots of local papers, and I was overwhelmed by the amount of, of material and the amount of people who, who got in touch with me and sent me letters, diaries, and, and other sort of mementos. Um, and so I think there was certainly a feeling amongst the veterans of Casino that their, their struggles in Italy had not been given the attention that they deserved. And really, I hope that my book, which is, has been around for a long time and has sold you know, 300,000 copies or something around the world, I hope that's in a little way um, made amends for the battle being ignored up until that point. That was Matthew Parker. His book, Monte Cassino, The Story of the Hardest Fought Battle of World War II, is published by Headline in the UK and Doubleday in the US. And in the UK, it has also recently been made available for the Kindle. The history of Italy in the Second World War is a subject that is also explored in the May issue of BBC History magazine, where we have an article on how British spies sought to undermine Mussolini's regime. Also in the issue, we're investigating Elizabeth I's War on Terror, recalling the tragic life of Henry VIII's sister, and taking a trip to a Victorian railway station. If you like the sound of any of that, then why not pick up a copy at all good news agents or via our digital formats. And now we have a short advertisement break. It is cold at 6.40 in the morning of a March day in Paris, and seems even colder when a man is about to be executed by firing squad. From the opening line of Frederick Forsyth's gripping thriller, The Day of the Jackal, to the poignant photographs in the first illustrated edition of John Steinbeck's Once There Was a War, the Folio Society's unique and astonishing books are beautiful from start to finish. Discover more beautiful books at foliosociety.com forward slash history podcast and receive £20 off your first folio purchase. Quote code E20AF at checkout. New customers only. Brilliant moments with Visit Scotland. 
Experience the drama of the Battle of Bannockburn as it's brought to life by over 300 reenactors at Bannockburn Live. A great day out for all, there will be some of Scotland's biggest trad music stars on the main stage, battle preparations in the medieval villages, and fantastic Scottish produce to eat and drink. It all happens near Stirling on 28th and 29th June. Get your tickets now at bannockburnlive.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. The author of a best-selling Holocaust memoir has been ordered to pay back £13.3 million after she admitted much of her story was made up. In Misha, a memoir of the Holocaust years, published in 1997, Belgian writer Misha de Fonseca claimed she was adopted by a pack of wolves and killed a Nazi soldier to survive after her Jewish parents were taken during the Second World War. But it emerged in 2008 that she was not Jewish, as claimed, and her tale of four years wandering through forests to escape the Holocaust was untrue. Now, a judge has ruled that despite the author's claims that she believed her story to be true during the publication process, she will have to pay back the money she was awarded, which amounts to $22.5 million. Meanwhile, the Imperial War Museum is to upload the records of all of those who served with the British Army overseas between 1914 and 1918 to a digital memorial. The Lives of the First World War project will become the largest permanent collection of wartime biographies, remembering more than 4.5 million men and 40,000 women, the Telegraph reports. The first names to be put up are those who endured active army service. Over the coming months, millions of new records will be added, including those who served with the Royal Navy and the Royal Flying Corps. In other news, more than five centuries after Christopher Columbus's flagship, the Santa Maria, was wrecked in the Caribbean, archaeological investigators think they may have discovered the vessel's long-lost remains, lying at the bottom of the sea off the north coast of Haiti. 
According to The Independent, the leader of a recent expedition to the site said that all the geographical, underwater topography and archaeological evidence strongly suggest that this wreck is a Santa Maria. So far, the team has carried out purely non-invasive survey work at the site, measuring and photographing it. The team hopes to carry out a detailed archaeological excavation of the wreck. Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets have gone on sale for our 2014 History Weekend Festival. Taking place from the 16th to 19th of October in the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury, the festival features talks from dozens of leading historians, authors and broadcasters. Among them, Hilary Mantel, Paddy Ashdown, Dan Snow, Earl Spencer... Susanna Lipscomb and Tom Holland. To find out more information and to purchase tickets, please visit the festival website, historyweekend.com. As events in eastern Ukraine continue to unfold, it is becoming ever more important to understand the history of Russia and the Soviet Union. A good place to start might well be the new book by Professor Orlando Figes, Revolutionary Russia, 1891-1991. to which provides a concise narrative of this pivotal period. I caught up with Orlando recently to find out more about his book, as well as a new website he has launched to help students and teachers of Russian history. Some people might expect a book on revolutionary Russia to begin in 1917, but you've actually started back in 1891. Why did you make that choice? Well, I think it's important to see the context of the revolution, the long durée, and I picked 1891 because with the famine crisis of that year, I thought it did begin what one might call a revolutionary crisis when society, the middle classes, the professional classes coming to the relief of the starving peasants moved into political opposition against the Russian autocracy and began to demand more representation for the Ziemstvers, those the local bodies, for national assembly and professional organisations begin to form and then off the back of the famine we see Marxism becoming a really mainstream set of ideas in the intelligentsia and political parties being formed. So that seemed to me the sort of first really major point of a split. I mean, you have written many books before about Russian history. Did you find it difficult to condense this whole 100-year period into one small volume like this? Yes, I did. I found it immensely difficult. My books tend to be rather long, and perhaps uh, condensation isn't my greatest skill. But I found um, in the original draft, it was meant to be even shorter than it is now. And I found that very difficult, especially since I'm covering 100 years of Russian revolutionary history. And... Then finally, you know, allowing yourself just 10% more space just liberated you a great deal because um, then suddenly the sort of detail, the sort of illustration one wanted to add, the sort of greater analysis one wanted to put into the narrative, you know, the easier it was. And it only took a little bit more. But I I think the book also comes off my teaching as well, I've got to say. I've taught courses on the Russian Revolution for about 30 years now. And this book is, to some extent, possible because over that period, I've learned to sort of 
make it more concise, make it clearer. Clarity, I think, is the one thing I've really strived for in, in this book, to, to make the contours of the revolution, the causes and consequences of the revolution really clear to a general reader and I hope to lots of students. And did doing this exercise actually in any way reshape your ideas about the Russian Revolution and its aftermath? I think it did, yes. I mean, I think um, if I look back to my earlier books on the Russian Revolution, they were all written in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And a little bit more time has gone by now. And I think looking at it now, especially as we approach the centenary of 1917, I think it does look differently. You know, the Russian Revolution is now very much a part of history, not of politics anymore, despite the current events in Russia clearly having a connection to Russia's revolutionary legacies. And I think also looking at the history as a 100-year cycle, which is the main argument of the book, the idea that if it begins in 1891 with the famine crisis, it doesn't really end until 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union because essentially, although they ran out of energy and perhaps a certain amount of belief, the Soviet leaders after Khrushchev, even Brezhnev, really did believe they were continuing a revolution and in terms of their international policies, thought they might still inspire third world countries to follow the Soviet example. So looking at the revolution as this century-long cycle, I think does throw up a number of new perspectives. And I wanted to illuminate the idea of revolution itself, you know, the idea that this was an experiment, this was something that could be perfected, this was something that had its own dynamic and continue to roll on in ideology at least, but also in policies for the entire Soviet leadership. I think if you do that, it does look rather different than it would if you simply wrote your more orthodox treatment of the Russian Revolution as something that begins around 1917 and ends around the time of Lenin's death. And actually, this, the Soviet period probably lasted longer than a lot of comparable totalitarian regimes in places like Germany or Spain or Italy. Do you have a view of why it, it managed to cling on for so long? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the point, isn't it? That it did last three generations, and I've tried to chart that 100-year cycle in terms of three generational phases. The first of essentially the old Bolsheviks from the late 19th century until the 1930s. And I suppose if they hadn't died out by then, that old Bolshevik intelligentsia was then eliminated by the Great Terror of 1937. And then a second phase of Stalin's generation, people who rose from humble origins as a result of the Civil War and the Revolution and Stalin's great sort of state-building, industrializing project and took the place of those old Bolsheviks and continued most of them in, in positions until the end of the Soviet regime. And then the third phase, which I date from Khrushchev's secret speech of 1956, denouncing the cult of personality, which I believe was a real crisis of authority for the system, but also gave birth to a, a new Marxist intelligentsia within the party, um, you know, whose most prominent representative was probably Gorbachev, and who tried to make the revolution work, or at least to reform the system then, um, right at the end. So I think 
the coming back to your question if we if we think of the revolution in this sort of long durée the reasons for its endurance become a little bit clearer firstly the the bolsheviks from the beginning saw their revolution as a, as a long term task and from the 1920s applied themselves furiously to the task of changing human nature of educating children in soviet values in um eradicating traces of the old imperial bourgeois culture as they would have put it and that did have very lasting legacies for that generation for kids who grew up in the 1920s for the large part accepting the values they were given through school and partly because they were inhibited from accepting the values of families that might predate the revolution because that was politically more dangerous and then once you put a sort of lightning bolt of terror through the system as stalin does in 1937 but in sort of smaller waves of terror throughout his reign lasting until 1953 that sort of breeds into that generation a sort of fear that i think uh, does explain the longevity of the system because however much you might sort of lose faith in the system as a result of the uh, terror and all the sort of contradictions between the system's propaganda and what you know to be its realities you're never really going to step outside the line because of what many people in the later soviet period called you know genetic fear if they've been brought up by families that have suffered repression in the 1930s then they themselves growing up in the 1950s and 60s might sympathize with dissident ideas but they're not really going to join the dissidents because there's a sort of inbuilt self-censorship an inbuilt inhibition about entering political activism against the regime and i think that does sort of create an inbuilt loyalty to the system that explains why it lasted so long for what i think was essentially 3 decades after genuine belief in the system had evaporated among a significant sectors of the population You've also just launched a new website on the period as well uh, which is aimed at those teaching and, and studying this period. Do you think that there there are currently gaps in how these areas are taught at school? I think there are. Yes, I mean I've given dozens of talks in schools over the years and had a lot of contact with teachers and I and I've always been struck how the textbooks although very good in many ways are in others asking the wrong questions about the revolution and i think it's really important in this age of the book essentially dying out as a form and probably not the first port of call for information for most students even at university level it's terribly important for professional historians to get their work into the classroom and that's why I've spent quite a lot of time actually in the last year trying to develop a website that would be useful for students and teachers doing all the major sort of A level IB university courses on the Russian revolution and soviet history and I've learned a lot from doing it I think in terms of you know tailoring my ideas to what students need and I hope it will be used widely by schools because as I say there's I think a real need 
need for not just information. I mean, information is so easy to get these days, and I think students are very quick at getting information. I think the problem now is for students to get guidance on how they think about problems, about what sort of questions they ask of the information, about um, how they might construct an argument about what issues are really important in any major subject like the Russian Revolution. And um, I think they, you know, it's best come from the professional historians who've worked on this for a long time, rather than from people who write textbooks or who haven't worked in the archives or who haven't sort of spent a lifetime thinking about these questions. And I hope that more historians will join me in trying to get their work into the classroom. Why do you think it is that traditionally academic historians haven't generally been that involved in the school curriculum? Um, I don't know. I think professional historians pursue academic careers which involve writing academic books and monographs and they may occasionally write a book for a more general audience which is usually a synthesis of, of work and it's put out there through the book trade and probably sits on a lot of people's homes but doesn't get into the classroom because books for most students are quite expensive and I think because probably the idea that professional academics should be talking to teachers and students isn't something that is part of their remit. I think for me it's just been different because I do a lot of teaching in schools and because my subject happens to be a very mainstream subject. I mean, I think probably after the Nazis, maybe even before the Tudors, Soviet history is is like the most studied subject in history A-levels. And so I think it's important that students get good guidance from professional historians. And I think, you know, if I can... Uh, not present myself as completely altruistic over this and uh, think about why, you know, my own commercial reasons for doing this and uh, maybe other historians might think about this too because the book is essentially, I think, in the long run dying out for this new generation. It's very important to get your work over to them in ways that they find more user-friendly, that they trust, that they are used to using, i.e. on the internet. And so I don't expect uh, this generation of students to sort of rush out and buy my backlist of books. Part of the reason why I'm putting the stuff on the website is that so that they can get some samples of those books and, and maybe will come to them in time. But I think it's um, equally important for them to get guidance on, on how they should think about such an important subject. For prospective students and teachers, what kind of material can they find on your website? Well, there are 18 sections, each of which sort of corresponds with a part of the curriculum that they would likely be doing, and which, and which also corresponds with, with a chapter in Revolutionary Russia. So you can use the website alongside the book. And in each section, there are extracts from, from my books, there are uh, commentaries and text on the outline of history, there are questions and answers they might think about for exams, there are photographic essays, there are videos 
with commentaries on and there's a podcast in each section so that you can get access to a seminar I've run and I'm also planning for students to have sort of feedback channels and a sort of Q&A at regular points. I'm going to do one with the school next month running a seminar with them through Skype on the Russian Revolution. So that's a bit of an experiment but I think it's a, it's a really exciting venture for me to get to get my work into the classrooms. And, and do you think studying this subject of particular importance at the moment because of what is going on with Russia and its surrounding countries? I think the current events, Russia's uh, aggressive intervention in Ukrainian politics, its annexation of Crimea, have obviously thrown into relief the issue of Russia, which frankly never went away. And I think it will remain. Russia may not be a superpower anymore, but it's a very important regional power and its history leaves a shadow over current politics in important ways that perhaps have not been acknowledged for the last 10 years, but which now with this present crisis, I think we're beginning to think again about. And do you think actually that the Russian policymakers themselves are influenced by a Soviet past? Oh, absolutely, yes. I think I think what we're seeing now in Ukraine is definitely for the Putin leadership afters from the collapse of the Soviet Union, which Putin, you know, is on record as saying was a huge catastrophe for Russia, leaving as it did so many Russians outside of the Russian Federation and leaving um, a geopolitical space in the territories of the former Soviet Union that Russia believes it has a sort of right to influence. Of course, we in the West may see these as sovereign states, quite rightly, um, but the Russians see it slightly differently. And that also is a legacy of the Russian Revolution, of the Soviet Union, which is not going to go away very soon. That was Orlando Figes. Revolutionary Russia, 1891 to 1991, is out now, published by Pelican in the UK and Metropolitan Books in the US. Orlando's new website can be found at orlandofiges.info. Much of the material on it is free, but there is a small subscription charge to access the full site. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in the future. And you can also keep in touch with us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at History Extra. And on Facebook, we're also History Extra. Plus, do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for the latest history news, quizzes, galleries, articles, as well as previous episodes of this podcast that go back to 2007. Next week, we'll be discussing slavery in ancient Rome and the First World War. Please do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. 
From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.